0: Planning a trip to one of the great national parks, L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit LLBean.com slash explore.
1: Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the Best MSU Basketball Podcast featuring in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey, everybody. It's Eric alongside Rod. We're here for our Notre Dame preview show. But before we start, I'd like to thank Sean Suthers, who gave a one-time gift via P- PayPal to the show. Thank you so much, Sean, and for your support. And for all those who are supporting our show through Patreon and through one-time gifts, you can, of course, do that at tffinots.com slash support. There you can find ways to either be a monthly patron or to be uh, do the one-time gift through Venmo or PayPal. Uh, that's what keeps the show running. That's what keeps us going and why we keep adding new features to the show every day. All right, so let's get into this. But before we talk about Notre Dame, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the news because it's the uh, you know the infirmary at Michigan State East Lansing. We've had obviously Malik calls out for a couple of weeks, and Jade Akins been back and then he left and he was out for the PK85. And so, Rod, why don't you kind of tell us where Akins is because the last time we saw him, he looked like he was okay, but we hadn't seen him actually in suited up and on the court.
0: Yeah. Um, so officially, <laughs> or as official as it gets. Uh, per Tom Izzo's press conference <laughs> this afternoon, Akins is doubtful for Notre Dame. Um, some of our listeners, I think we may have even mentioned it in our post game, but uh, some of our listeners may have noticed that Jaden was not wearing the boot on the bench uh, in the Portland game. And that tracks with what I've heard that it's, this is not something they believe is a huge deal. Um, I'll also note again, I will reiterate, I was told at the start of the tournament that if this were an NCAA tournament game, Jaden Akins would have been able to go. So clearly what they're doing is they want to make doubly certain that this is not a chronic problem, that when he comes back, he is truly back and we don't have an in and out all year long. You know, that's what you don't want to have happen. So That's what's going on. I thought there would be a chance that he would play against Notre Dame. But as you think about it, you know, remember Izzo, and apparently, by the way, apparently he did do, Jaden did some shoot-around stuff on Saturday, on the off day in Portland. He didn't go through a full practice, but he did some shoot-around. So Izzo may not be counting that in his he's got to practice mm-hmm. two days before he plays two consecutive days um and i i suspect that he probably doesn't count that but it tells you that you know this isn't anything to be worried about long term um so if you think about it though you look at the schedule they like they must have gotten back very late last night because the game ended what 7 30 eastern time so they probably, even if they got out of there quickly, you know, you're not talking about getting home till one in the morning, probably. And that's a best case scenario. So likely today, I would think they probably had a fairly light practice. Maybe tomorrow they might have another one and then go to South bend. Um, But, uh, but not a lot of opportunity to really get him the kind of work that you'd want him to get to make, to sign off on his plane again. So that might be what's going on. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, big 10 play starts on Sunday against Northwestern. You want him to be straight for that. That game matters more than Notre Dame. That's, that's just the reality of it. Um, So I guess, I guess I'm going to make a guess here. And I could be horribly wrong, but I'm going to guess that Jaden actually dresses for this game, but that they, they try to hold him out.
1: Yeah. Uh, Would you also, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to Aikens and his injury, it sounds like, according to what we've heard, again, the official reports, that it was not a surgical site. It was a different sort of injury to his foot. And and if that's the case, then you'd expect that his, his surgical site should be well-recovered by this point and that this is a new sort of thing that they're letting, you know, recover, but also, you know, it's going to take him a while to get back in game shape. And so I would suspect that if he comes back at Notre Dame or Northwestern, either way, he's not really back to full strength until probably like January where he's kind of back in the flow and we might expect him to start a game. Right.
0: Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. I think that that's what, you know, that's what you're using those handful of remaining non-conference games and um, and all that time off around the holiday or just prior to the holiday when MSU is going to have an opportunity to practice a lot. Um, that's what you're looking for to get Jaden back up to 100%. I mean, the shame of it is it felt like in the Villanova game you were seeing him just round yes. back. You know, that felt like the first time that he was truly – you know, OK, that's why you're, that's the Jade Makins you people raving about in the summer. And, and it felt like you were obviously that dunk was a moment that had people uh, feeling that way, but not the only moment. He played really well in that game. Uh, and so you're, you're kind of back. I would think you're kind of back to where we were in the northern Arizona or Gonzaga games, you know, Um, and so probably will take a little while for him to work back up from there. But, uh, if you get them, look with both he and Malik Hall, I think clearly the target is have them pretty much ready to go in terms of being back up to speed and feeling comfortable by the time big Ten play kicks back in, in January, that's the realistic goal right now. You're not worried about this game. You know, you know, you're not going to be at full strength for Northwestern and Penn State. And then once you get past those, you, you've you got games that, you know, you're hopefully just going to be using much more the way we're used to seeing in a typical non-conference. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't had, a, I mean, Northern Arizona, yeah, I it. guess, the opener was the one game where you could feel like, okay, MSU can use this as an opportunity to get guys' minutes, work with different combinations, et cetera. Other than that, these have all been games that, you know, there's been a lot of heat to try to win and against stiff competition. So they haven't, and, and we've still got another week and a half or so of that before we're finally through it. Um, but that will be a welcome turn, uh, I think, is when br- the Browns and Buffaloes roll onto the schedule. It's like, all right, we can, we can finally you know, look to use a non-conference game for what they're typically, most of them are designed to be, which is truly an opportunity to work through your stuff, get guys back in the swing of things like we're talking about with Aikens and Hall, and, you know, and not have to be sweating out, can we win this game?
1: Well, yeah, and you expect that even with Hall's injury, you're probably good for him making the, the mission game on January 7th. And then Aikens by that point should be.
0: Oh God, that, that's a. Oh that's yeah, a but worse I but I'm saying
1: and I'm not saying case. would he be back, but that he would be back sort of back in basketball form by then, yes, right? And yes, Aiken should easily be true. by then too. So.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true.
1: So the other breaking news is uh, what I guess we had talked about this this summer. I think it was when we were talking about the new relationship with the Big Ten, with their TV contract with CBS and Fox. Uh, that we had an expectation that at some point the ESPN I don't know the the sort of the games they had set up, the challenges they had set up like the ACC Big Ten challenge would at some point come to an end and they announced that today that that this is the last year so this is going to be the final year of this challenge which has been going on for a long time. so it was what like 20 plus years, right?
0: Yeah, uh, 23 years um, so, yeah so it looks like you know there's a poster on the spartan mag board and i'm just reading this as we're we're talking about it um atlanta 12 who for those of our listeners who participate on that board may know he's a guy who's actually extremely well plugged into the television side of big time college athletics now he's made a lot of Um, a lot of early calls that have proven to be extremely prescient. He says it's a foregone conclusion that the Big Ten and Big 12 will create a new challenge of their own on Fox, most likely premiering next season. So uh, this is my thought. Um, I I think that both the Big Ten and the ACC take a little bit of a hit from this. And I don't mean competitively. From a competitive standpoint, this is going to be fine. Yeah. You know, the sec has invested a lot of money in its basketball side because for uh, Jim Camperoni, again, from Spartan mag used to have a term I loved where he described sec basketball outside of Kentucky and arguably Florida, at least when Billy Donovan was there as a third world basketball, <laughs> yeah. meaning you knew it occurred. You knew it was happening. <laughs> But you didn't really see it. (laughs) I mean, and that's an exaggeration, but only slightly. I mean, uh, and and I still think this is why I say both the Big Ten and the ACC are hurt by this a little bit. Competitively, the SEC has improved. You've invested real money. They've got a definite uptick in coaching. I mean, if you look now, you have programs outside of Kentucky. You have, even with Florida falling off, you've got Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, Auburn all I'd say very much rejuvenated, you know, as as strong basketball programs. And all of those programs that's really only happened in about the last five years or so. And again, it's largely because those coaches came in. You know, Rick Barnes came into tennis to Knoxville from Texas and has made them consistently good since he got there. Bruce Pearl, you know, ethically dubious. (laughs) But he's but he's he's done a job. At Auburn, on the court, at least, no question about that. Um, we've talked about Nate Oates at Alabama. Um, Eric Musselman at Arkansas has just been recruiting unbelievably well, and has an interesting team. And they were good last season too. So, I think the ACC-SEC challenge, which you know they announced that it was the Big Ten-ACC challenge was over, and within an hour they announced the new one, the <laughs> yeah. replacement. So obviously. You know everything was lined up. Um, I think from a competitive standpoint, it'll be fine. You know, but the problem is the SEC doesn't have the juice that the Big Ten or the ACC have in the world of college basketball, and that's for two reasons I take, and they're somewhat interrelated but not entirely. One is. Most of those schools, pretty much all of them outside of Kentucky, and maybe you might be able to argue Arkansas, don't really care that much about basketball. I mean, I'm sorry to be that, but that's just the truth. If you look at attendance figures, if you look at television ratings, on and on and on, it's not SEC football, people. It's just not. And those fan bases don't care as much about it, again, outside of a handful of places. And that also, I think, in part translates to I don't think the SEC moves the needle nationally the way the Big Ten or the ACC do. You know, and again, it's because most of those schools, you know, the Big Ten is obviously a football driven conference, too. We all know that. But the fact is, it has a much longer and I would argue and, and I would freely admit to Big Ten bias here, but I think I've got history and facts on my side the big 10 has a much more robust history and tradition of basketball than the sec as a collective does. You know, I don't think that's a wild statement. I think it's true. And so the ACC playing the sec instead of the big 10, that's not, it don't have as much juice. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. And conversely, the big 10 playing the big 12, look from a competitive standpoint, you could make a good argument that the best conference in America, at least over the last five years or so, and maybe even a little longer than that, has been the Big 12 year to year. I mean, it's it's a very, very good basketball league. It has been for quite a while. Um, but again, outside of Kansas, it doesn't have quite the same cachet mm-hmm. as the ACC in this sport. It just doesn't. And that's not the fault of those schools. It's just reality. So I'm not surprised to see that the Big Ten and the Big 12 are going to get together in that. Um, But it's disappointing. I mean, this is for 23 years now, which is basically almost all of Tom Izzo's career. This thing came into being very early in Izzo's tenure. Basically, it came into being, I'm trying to remember, is this, I think it might have been that the first the first year might've been the national championship year for Michigan state. If it wasn't that season, it was the season before where they went to the final four. Right. So basically this thing came into being at the point Tom Izzo was turning Michigan state from a good program into an elite one. So it's, you know, there's a lot of fans, a lot, lot, lot of fans, anybody in their thirties, you know, that this is, they've known this existing for probably the lifetime of their college basketball fandom, you know, or pretty close to it. So it's a big deal. I, I, I don't poo poo it. It's a big deal that it's going away. It's unfortunate. it's nice that they'll each have another, um, another challenge to uh, to go forward with uh, into the future, but it's just not going to be the same. The big 10 and the ACC are the two heavyweight basketball conferences in America. That is reality. And from year to year, that might not always be true from a competitive standpoint, but in terms of fan interest, in terms of gravitas, that's the truth. It was not an accident that they were playing each other in this thing. You know what I mean? Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's unfortunate. As a, as a fan of the sport, um, I, I'm disappointed by this, but I also shouldn't be surprised. I think what's driving this to to maybe get back to the the starting point here: Why, and it's ESPN who drove this. Um, why did they do that? Well, I think this is. I'm not. I'm not ready to say I think it was done out of spite, <laughs> but I think. I do think you'd have a tough argument to make that in the short term, this is in their interests because the SEC doesn't move the needle the way the Big Ten does. So you can't make that argument, oh, we've got a better opponent for the ACC. That's not true. In any way that matters, it's not true. Uh, But what I think is going on is ESPN is likely saying in some way, shape, or form, we want to build the conferences that we are partnering with. And this is a way to help elevate the SEC in this sport, is to say, we're going to put you in this high profile event, you know? So we, we will see how that turns out for them. I think, I don't think it'll be a disaster, but I don't think it will ever be what the big 10 ACC challenge was. I I don't see how it can be because the SEC is not people in that region of the country are not going to all of a sudden collectively at all those member institutions say, Oh, we care about college basketball a lot more now. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't believe that, you know, yeah, you could try. And, and it looks like ESPN is going to do their damnedest, but I, I think that's a fool's errand.
1: well, well you know, the, the business model, when it comes to ESPN, they're they're in much of a pickle because they have they have to the show live sports. That is their model. You know, when it comes to original content creation, they don't have a whole lot of it except the sports talk shows, which I don't think get great ratings. And um, and that's if you're a streaming service, you want to have content you produce. Well, they can't, so they're sort of stuck with live sports. They don't have the revenue or that they don't have the money to these to form these big contracts with the Big Ten, uh, and so. They're left with sort of the scraps, which is interesting because it used college sports in many ways has been, at least from a televised standpoint from the 80s on, has really been dictated by ESPN and sort of it's it broadcast of sports and highlights. Right. But it has sort of the the sport has moved past ESPN and now the other networks are in on it and they have more money. And uh, it's I mean, they're doing what they can, but it, you just see ESPN is sort of like a, a floundering I mean, just kind of withering away, I suppose, is kind of like a way of looking at it very slowly.
0: That's an interesting way of characterizing it, and you've probably got a point. Um, college basketball, in particular, more than any other single sport, is responsible for ESPN gaining a foothold in the American sports landscape and growing it. Because they had college basketball before they had anything else all the stuff that, again, people, you know, in their twenties or thirties take for granted ESPN didn't have the NFL. They didn't have the NBA. They didn't have the NHL. They didn't have major league baseball. They had college basketball. And that is what that channel was built on. But you're right. Now we are at a point where to a company like Fox, it matters. They're willing to pay that money. and, And that's, that's the bottom line. My understanding is ESPN simply could not afford yeah. to pay what the Big Ten was going to be able to command. So they didn't. They, they put in an offer that they knew was going to be lowball and I guess left Big Ten with the choice, well, do we value our presence on ESPN enough to take less to have some kind of presence on it? And the answer was no. And I support that, by the way. I think that, ESPN over the last 20 years or so has evolved into something that I think is not entirely, but oftentimes a net negative for sports for a variety of reasons. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about political stuff. I don't, I don't care so much about that. I don't care. I'm talking about the way sports are covered, the influence that they have had, on, on certain aspects of how sports operate and are governed, the way sports are understood and discussed, all of these things. I think there is a net, you make a pretty good argument that they've been a net negative. So I'm all for anything that reduces their strength in that particular marketplace. I'm fully supportive of it. That's why I couldn't be happier that, than, that the Big Ten decided to pass on any relationship with them and, and go forward with Fox. I'm all for it. So from that perspective, I I just thought I did, I will admit, I did think that there was a chance that ESPN would look at basketball and say, you know what? It still makes sense for us to stay in business with the big 10 where we can. So that part of this surprises me. But when I step back and look at it, I can see the rationale that there is also something that is worth thinking about. And, you know, if you pay attention to business maneuverings, you know, Disney, who is the parent corporation of ESPN, just recently fired their CEO and brought back Robert Iger, who was the former CEO. <laughs> yeah. Um, that didn't happen because things are great <laughs> with Disney. Know. you know, yeah. Um, without getting lost in the weeds on it. There are a lot of problems with Disney. And one of them, as I understand it, is the SPN, which for a long time was a cash cow, that company, but now isn't as much, in part because of exactly what you were just talking about. That the life's blood of it is live event coverage. And when the cost of doing business in that space gets stiffer and stiffer, it becomes harder and harder for ESPN to remain competitive in that world. So they're at the very least, they're at a point now where they have been cut off from certain aspects of collegiate athletics. Like they don't have a role with the Big Ten anymore, period. Yeah, It's done. Um, it remains to be seen what happens with the Big 12 and the Pac-12, but they can kind of be the case there too. So it might just be the SEC and the ACC, and that's kind of it. They don't have, for in basketball terms, not that it matters that much to the bottom line, but the Big East has been a Fox partner um, for years anyway. So that's not new. Um, it, the, the sport is getting balkanized in that way in a fashion that it hasn't been before now. And that's a reflection of, I guess, limited resources, right?
1: Yeah, what a so the,
0: the, the, the The last point I wanted to make about all this is It does make me wonder, and I don't pretend to have any particular insight to this, but because I didn't think they would be this quick to move on this one, uh, it now makes me wonder what will happen with the vast, vast, vast majority of the Feast Week tournaments. And, And here's why I say this. people, Not all our listeners may realize this. Those things are not equivalent to bowl games. You know, in college football, bowl games are typically, um, I believe, at least a lot of them are historically, they were owned by, you know, a locality. Right. So it was seen as a, an effort to boost tourism in the winter months and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The Feast Week tournaments are almost all owned and operated by ESPN. Again, I don't know if people realize that or not. So Maui. Um, I'm not sure if there's any joint ownership relationship with Nike for the PK tournaments, but those aren't annual events anyway. Um, One exception might be, and I'm not sure about this, actually might be Atlantis. Because I have a memory of Atlantis actually being broadcast on other networks besides ESPN, at least it had been in the past. But most of these tournaments you saw in the last week, are owned by ESPN. Maui definitely is. And this happening does make me wonder, might they start kind of easing out Big Ten participation? I I would be surprised by that if for no other reason than I don't think those tournaments can really survive in the way they currently operate without Big Ten teams. Yeah, Any major tournament has a Big Ten team in it right? Yep. Always, every year. There, there's no exception to it. And it just, forget about attendance, because as you just saw in Portland over the weekend, <laughs> attendance really doesn't matter, right? Yeah, right. But, but eyeballs do. Yep. And again, I go back to, are you really going to be able to do the job in terms of drawing interest if you don't have Big Ten teams playing in these things? I don't think you are. So I guess I'd still be surprised to see Big Ten teams eased out of that. But given that this happened, I think it's at least something to keep your eye on. Yeah. Um, and if that did happen, I don't know what the ramifications would be. You know, it, it's, again, for people who were maybe only in their 30s, you might not remember. It, college basketball wasn't always this way. I, I remember well into my 20s, the only tournaments that weren't on-campus-hosted events that really mattered. There was the Great Alaskan Shootout mm-hmm. in Alaska, and the ra- there was a thing called the Rainbow Classic in Hawaii. Yep. yep. And that was it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Other than that, what was typical in the non-conference was for a, a major conference school to host a four-school invitational. Michigan State, it was alternately called the Cutlass Classic or the Coca-Cola Classic. Um, for years and you would you would usually have they would try at least to get one other power conference team but you know sometimes they did sometimes they didn't and then two smaller schools and and that formula was replicated across college basketball indiana used to do two of them they had the indiana classic and they had the hoosier classic <laughs> <laughs> were both so these were these were not nearly as competitive as what we've grown accustomed to say the last 30 years the sport really began to change in the early 90s with Maui Maui was the thing that really kicked that off and and it's become a whole deal it's it's probably my second favorite week of the year in college basketball is that week because there's just constantly college basketball and you're seeing great matchups um, power conference teams facing each other. You're seeing good mid-major teams getting a chance to make their name. You know it's it's competitive and it's every day, and it's great stuff. I would say only the first weekend of the NCAA tournament tops it. You know, for me as a basketball fan, so to see any change in that would be really jarring, and I'm hoping that we don't see that.
1: Yeah, I think I, I'll just add a couple points. One is, you know, that when it comes to eyeballs. There's a reason the Big Ten was able to sign that massive TV contract. It's because they are the number one conference. And especially when you look at those like that conference attendance in Portland, as you pointed out, there were as many Michigan State fans, maybe more than Oregon fans and Portland fans, which is stunning. But it just shows you the, the draw that college athletics has from the Big Ten and why they're so important to viewership, you know, on TV and then in person
0: it's not just Michigan state either. No, there no. Right. That really. There was a really good four team event earlier in the week in Vegas with UCLA and Virginia and Illinois. And I think Baylor was the other team. So those are, those are four good programs. Right. And in UCLA, one of them is a, considered a blue blood. You know who had the most fans by far at that thing, Illinois. Yeah. Um, you know, you go on and on and on. Purdue had a great turnout at, uh, in Portland as well as Michigan state, you know, um, Ohio state had a good turnout from what I could see in Maui. You know, that's just, that's the way it is. And that's just in person turnout that doesn't even begin to capture the eyeballs on television, which is what this is really all about. So uh, just a couple of other uh, quick ramifications of this potentially one um I do wonder if this is going to mean that we see an extension of Gavit games, which is controlled by Fox because Fox has both the Big Ten and the Big East. So if they want it to continue and the conferences want to continue with it, that can continue. Um, The problem with it is because the Big East is significantly smaller in membership than the Big Ten. Um, you can't, it, it won't equate to what the Big Ten ACC challenge would ever be because you never have everybody involved from the Big Ten side. Uh, but it makes me wonder. I kind of felt like that one might be going away, but I I'm, I wonder now, even if this Big 12 thing does come online, um, you know, it, it, yeah. it remains to be seen. The other big shoe to drop potentially, and this is the one that I think Michigan State fans will be most concerned about, is the Champions Classic that is owned and operated by ESPN? Okay, Mark Howes created it, but it's ESPN's property. Mm-hmm. Um, they are they have all been renewed through 2025, so it will be interesting to see if there is a change made in that. The problem with making a change is. The only real route you have to take, in my mind, would be to either say, well, we're going to bring a Pac-12 team in. And that would only be viable, I guess, if ESPN maintains some relationship with the Pac-12. But even there, who are you going to bring in? Your your marquee basketball program by a massive amount in that league is going to be in the Big Ten. Yeah. UCLA right yeah so if you're looking to exclude the Big Ten and they're not you're not going to replace Michigan State out of the Big Ten that's just that's not going to happen at least not yet maybe if Tom Izzo's replaced and it doesn't go well for a while maybe there would be some some move there but short of that, that it's not going to happen um, so your only other option is to probably double up with either the ACC or the SEC now you could grab North Carolina and nobody would bitch about you know the quality like hey that would they would be legitimately part of a champions classic but that would be both North Carolina and Duke in that thing and I don't think I would think Duke would fight tooth and nail to prevent that oh yeah and I don't I don't see how having half of the field BACC teams would be particularly exciting one of the things that makes that a bet is you've got one team from each of those four major conferences participating. So we have at least three more years of it going as it currently is. So it goes through 25. So that means 23, 24, 25. Um, After that though, who knows? And that, that I think is definitely, that event is definitely something that I would, I would think is in question at this point again, because, ESPN seems to be with this move indicating that they are primarily interested in boosting the fortunes of the properties that they have a relationship with. You know, and on one hand, I can't blame them for that. On the other, I think it's short-sighted because the bottom line is you want the events you have to pull in interest, to maximize the interest. And it's pretty hard to argue that the Champions Classic can be improved upon in that way. But
1: you know, again, like I said, they're sort of in a pickle. They their their model is largely built on subscriptions, which is through cable television, which we, as everybody knows, has been declining. And yes, there are streaming yep. services that use ESPN, but their reimbursements a lot less, and so ESPN has less money to spend on these live events. And you know, there therein lies their problem that they're with their model. Um, and uh, then the other thing, which is totally unrelated, I've and i don't read this, but I think the only team in the Big Ten who has a winning record in the ACC Big Ten Challenge is Penn State, which is, I think, kind of funny. But,
0: huh. Yeah. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that real quickly before we get into Notre Dame, which is kind of an overview of what now is going to be the last ever Big Ten ACC Challenge. Because as you know, um, this has been an event that by and large, Uh, the um, the ACC has had the better of yes you know Um, I think that's true but uh, I don't think that's going to be the case this year (laughs) now this the thing you always have to remember is this isn't really people like to make this into a a relative strength competition and It really never is that. And the reason it's not that is it's solely dependent upon how the matchups go. Sure. Yeah. You can have a year, not even just who's playing who, but who's playing who and where they're playing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of luck of the draw, you know? Um, Sometimes you've had years where I felt the big Ten was clearly the stronger conference, but they had a bad draw. Um, This year, I don't think it matters. I mean, I look at the draw and I think, it doesn't change the basic facts, which are at least right now, the Big Ten has got a pretty good claim, in my opinion, for being the best conference in America. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be that way when we get to March. And it doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that it's, it's going to result in Final Four teams and a national title or anything like that. We know that. But in terms of measuring a conference's strength, 1-14, to 14, I think it's pretty hard to argue that the Big Ten hasn't had the best on conference to date. Uh, you just had Purdue win their half, their, their bracket of the, uh, the PK event, the legacy. And they did it by just demolishing Gonzaga and Duke in consecutive games. Very impressively done. Indiana really hasn't played anybody yet. They did get a road win against Xavier, but that's it. Uh, but they've looked very impressive. Illinois looked great beating UCLA and hung with Virginia for quite a while before fading at the end. They look pretty good. We know what Michigan state has done. I think I thought Ohio state looked pretty good in Maui when I saw them and, and they went two and one in that event. So I think they look good. Wisconsin has one loss. They've got three power five wins and one loss, which came by a point against Kansas. Yeah. And people aren't even convinced that Wisconsin's any good. I'm not convinced they're any good by Big Ten standards, but the the start, you can't deny it. Iowa finally got beat, but they lost to a pretty good TCU team. You know, they've got a couple decent wins besides that. You know, on and on we go. The ACC, meanwhile, is in – they're in trouble. Uh, I think it is fair to argue – that the two standard bears, North Carolina and Duke for different reasons, do not look very good right now. And I don't mean that they're oh they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. Not good, but I mean, top 10 final four level team. Good. I don't think they've shown that Carolina went one and two in Portland. Um, they beat Portland barely, but that's not an, you know, we saw in the Michigan state game, Portland's not bad. <laughs> yeah. We didn't same. Yeah. And, but they lost their other two games. You know, they got beat by Iowa State pretty easily, and then they lost a tough, what was it four-overtime game? Three-overtime <laughs> game against Alabama. Yeah. But they lost. The thing is, they hadn't looked very good before that. They'd won, but they hadn't looked very impressive against lesser opposition. So UNC is basically, they're scoring well around the rim, but they can't shoot to save their lives from, from range. They can't hit threes. They've been awful, and they're not offensive rebounding the way Carolina teams typically do. So they've got some problems and people need to remember, you know, as Carolina was number one in the country by most people heading into the season, but you got to remember that team was a whole lot of not good for much of last season, right? For a lot of the year, it looked like Carolina was very questionable as to whether they'd even make the NCAA tournament, and then they got hot late. They beat Duke and the Mike Shishovsky, "Aren't you the greatest?" game at the end of his career, <laughs> and uh, and then they went into the NCAA tournament, got all the way to the national title game, right? Yep. But that was a heat check. I think they got hot. I don't know that it meant oh, Carolina. You know, sometimes that happens where a team struggles for a while, then they figure it out, and, it, and they bring a lot of people back, and it carries over into the next season. You could argue to an extent that was the case with UCLA last year. They were a team that barely made the tournament, um, got hot, made a huge run to the Final Four, and then carried over into last year where expectations were high. They didn't meet those expectations, but they still had a pretty good year. Mm-hmm. You know, So sometimes it works that way, and sometimes it doesn't people have to remember Carolina, all those guys being back. Those were the guys that were struggling in December and January and even into February. So should they have been the number one team? I think there was a lot of projection going on and they lost some key guys too. Like I like Pete Nance. I think Pete Nance is a really good player, but is he going to be as effective as the transfer from Oklahoma? They had last year, the weird beard guy. I don't <laughs> oh, know, man. <laughs> no, I don't know. So, questions there and with duke they're really young and i don't know that their freshmen are quite as good as they've been hyped to be outside of Philipowski, who i think is as good or better than people thought he would be um, you know duke too is they don't shoot it well and uh, you know uh, to me i looked at their profile today their offensive profile other than offensive rebounding where they that's that's what's saving them they're the number one offensive rebounding team in the country right now. Everything else that matters, they're horrible offensively. And defensively, I don't think they're great either. I mean, Purdue tore them up, tore them up. Yeah. And, and you know, you could say, well, it's their youth, and that might be true. But when I looked at the lineups Purdue was running out there, Purdue's not a super, super experienced team in some ways either. They're a little more experienced than Duke, but not by a lot. They were running a lot of freshmen out there or sophomores who hadn't played very much, um, and they looked a lot better. So, those are your standard bearers. The, the old Florida State, who you can make an argument has been maybe the best non UNC Duke Virginia program in that league over the past five, six, seven years, right? They've been good yeah. a lot of the time. They are one and seven. Yeah, they're a disaster. They got beat by Nebraska. Nebraska <laughs> handily, like not close. So Florida State in real trouble, and some of that is some eligibility problems they've had that are kind of outside Leonard Hamilton's control. But that thing looks horrendous. And then we turn to the one that's even worse, Louisville. Louisville hasn't won a game yet. Not one game. And they haven't really played anybody yet either, I will note. They haven't played a really good team yet, I don't believe. But they've just been getting smacked. Um, Kenny Payne's in his first year, but God help him. um, That is not a fan base that is used to anything within light years of this. So I can't imagine that there's going to be a ton of rope. I'm not saying he's going to get fired, but this is worse than anybody anticipated. You know? That's one of your, I mean, Louisville, that's one of the all-time great programs, clearly a top 10 program historically, and they're 0-6, and, and I don't think that's going to get a lot better. Um, Syracuse, another traditional power, three and three, coming off a home court loss to Bryant. <laughs> it's
1: that's a strong even, Bryant squad. <laughs> it's,
0: it's Bryant, <laughs> which I will excuse many of our listeners if they didn't know that was actually a university. Um, this league is in trouble (laughs) Uh, we are talking about the upper echelon historically of what is a historically great basketball conference and right now a lot of those programs are in free fall and even the ones who aren't like Carolina and Duke to me right now which admittedly a ton can change but right now those do not look like teams you would give a great shot to to even get to the second weekend necessarily. I mean, I think it would be a struggle and certainly not to get out of it. You know, the one team who looks like they've got it together is Virginia. And unfortunately our good friends down the road get Virginia. So that'll be fun. The one ACC team that seems like they're ready to go. (laughs) Michigan gets to play them.
1: The one team that's not ready in the big 10. yeah,
0: Right. Exactly. It's polar opposites. But um, Virginia looks really good to me. I was really impressed watching them play Illinois. I thought they looked great. It's a, it's a standard issue, Tony Bennett kind of team. No one superstar, but everybody fills their role. They've got, they're balanced. Uh, and the one thing that's a little different than traditional Tony Bennett, this team is not exclusively playing pack line defense. They actually get out and trap in the half court and pressure the ball. They, I looked at the numbers today. I think they're number 60 in defensive turnover percentage, which is insane. That's just not traditional Tony Bennett basketball, but this team seems well-equipped to do it. So they look really good Uh, to me. Virginia might be able to win that thing by three or four games. I mean, at least in terms of a qualitative assessment right now, that's how I would view it. They look heads and shoulders Above everybody else, where I don't think you could say the same thing about the Big Ten. I think the Big Ten, there are a lot of teams that look pretty good. To to wrap to wrap it up before we go to that, so I I went on the Spartan Mag board and, and I might I might transport it to our board as well. Um, I went through every game. I've got the Big Ten winning it nine to five, um, and I think it might even okay. do a little a little bigger gap than that. <laughs> Ten and four wouldn't surprise me.
1: Well, let's talk about Michigan State's matchup is against Notre Dame in the um, uh, finale for the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Notre Dame's coming into the game at 5-1. and one. It's obviously the game's going to be played in South Bend, but 5-1 and one is not always 5-1. and one. So Notre Dame has beaten Radford by three, Youngstown State by seven, Southern Indiana by 12, Lipscomb by one, and Bowling Green by 16, although it was a little closer earlier on. And they lost by 12 on neutral court to St. Bonaventure. So they're they're struggling. I mean, they're winning, but they're you know not looking great they're 78th overall in Ken kenpom and in comparison Michigan say it's 30th uh, and they're 28th on offense but 168th on defense pretty good shooting threes uh 35 percent which is good for kind of uh 108th kind of close to the top uh top third uh They're 20th in shooting shooting twos number 13th in turnover percentage and number five uh from the free throw line at 83 percent but um they are 350th in offensive rebounding percentage. So they don't really do much there and defense they' you know, unmitigated disaster. They're sub 200 and threes and for their ranking of uh, 168, they're about bad and everything. And so that's sort of uh, the way it goes, except defensive rebounding, I guess. Uh, so yeah, let's go, th- let's go through this matchup in general first here.
0: It's look, it's a, it's very much, it's a team that seems to check all the Mike brave boxes so, <laughs> except I, I don't think they're as good as what his best teams have been. Um, offensively, they're not going to make a lot of mistakes. Uh, and that is true with this team. They shoot the ball well. Now, I, it's strange to say about a team that's not that bad in three-point shooting, but the fact is, I think they're probably a little bit disappointed because they're they're too... Um, two of their guards are well below their historical shooting percentages thus far as a group, they're doing okay, but I think they thought they'd be better than okay. And they probably have to be better than okay to be any good at all. Um, I don't think at, that the rate they're at currently, I don't think that's good enough um, because this team is predicated on shooting. If they're not, if they're not hitting yeah. shots and especially shots from deep, I don't know. They're bad enough at enough, enough other things. And I think that's going to be a problem. Um, Thank God they don't tend to draw an excessive amount of fouls. They're very much middle of the pack in terms of their frequency at getting to the line because they do shoot free throws extremely well. They're just under 83% as a team. So you don't want to get into a free throw shooting contest with them. That's for sure. Defensively, though, as I say, this is a Mike Bray special. Mike Bray (laughs) is a coach with a very similar profile in a lot of ways to Fran McCaffrey. I think of them as cut from much the same cloth. Their teams tend to be very efficient offensively. They tend to have a lot of shooters. Um, They tend to be uh, less – they tend to have less than superlative athletes. And I'm going to let you, uh, the listeners, translate that however you like. But the, but the <laughs> fact is they are not an impressive team athletically, and they rarely are. Um, and that usually has ramifications for what they can be defensively. And I think with this team in particular, they've got one guy, their freshman, uh, J.J. Starling, who I would term as an above-average athlete. Everybody else is below average for their position. So when you're below average like that, and you got a coach who historically doesn't seem to get about defense very much, this is what you get. A team that just gives up a ton of makes from three, from two, from the parking lot, wherever. They just don't defend anybody. (laughs) The one thing they do, which gives them a chance, you mentioned, they're a very good defensive rebounding team. So you're going to get good shots. You're going to get high-quality looks pretty much all game long. They're not going to pressure you, look to turn you over. But you probably won't get a ton of second chances either. So you better make those good looks that you get.
1: And just to give you an idea and a sense for how how um, I guess poorly Notre Dame is playing, Ken Palm projects Michigan State, even though they're on the road, to be a two-point favorite in this game. And that's, cons- I mean, that's even considering we're down two players. Um, I know that's probably, Ken Palm doesn't necessarily take that into effect like a Vegas line, but but, but their last three games they played without him, and so that affects their Ken Palm ratings. That
0: impacts your yeah. performance level. So, yeah, it is it is factored in there in, in a way. Yeah. All right, so
1: we'll go through a scouting report here on the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. We'll start with Trey Wirtz. He's a 6 6'5", redshirt senior, averaging 11.8 points a game on 45, 32, and 77 shooting. Leads the team with 4.5 assists per game to 1.5 turnovers per game, so a really nice 3-to-1 ratio. Yeah,
0: you know, um, good player and he's been a good player he's he's in his third year i think at notre Dame. he transferred in from santa clara and a lot of these guys played in that game uh at breslin in the covid year remember that when michigan state kind of manhandled them oh yeah right um he was in that lineup that was his first year uh after transferring in um good player uh, you see from the assisted turnover numbers he's he's a very solid decision maker Uh, I don't think he's the most dynamic point guard in the world, but he's effective there. The knock on him though, is that he is not shooting the ball as well as they're used. to. I mean, this is a guy who I think they believed, you know, could be a 40% ish kind of shooter from three and he hasn't been thus far. So he's one of those two guys that I was mentioning a few minutes ago that I think has held, held down their production from deep, uh, to kind of a mediocre level. Where if he and the next guy we're going to talk about were at shooting at their historical rate, Notre Dame would be a very, very good three-point shooting team. The scary part of that is, especially in any one-game scenario, you have to yeah. be worried about, well, is this the game they break out of it?
1: Well, next we'll talk about that aforementioned player, a player who could only play for the fighting Irish, Cormac Ryan, a five redshirt senior, averaging 10 points a game on 39, 22, and 94 shooting. And so his three point shooting, as you mentioned, way off. He was averaging uh, thirty four and forty one percent the last two years, and now he's down to twenty two.
0: You, you you say that, but he actually started his career at Stanford. He played a year at Stanford, and then he transferred to Notre Dame. But um, you're right.
1: He saw the light, he, I
0: guess. He figured it out eventually <laughs> that he needed to be at South Bend. Um, same deal. I mean, except he's not a distributor in the way Warts is, but uh, you know, historically, a pretty good shooter. And he's been terrible thus far. If you're Michigan State, you worry, again, you worry, is this the game? He gets back on the beam. But thus far, he has not shot it well.
1: And next up is J.J. Starling, you mentioned before. He's a dynamic 6'5", or, sorry, 6'4 freshman and teammate of 2023 MSU recruit Jeremy Fears at La Lumiere. He started, Starling's averaging 12.8 points a game on 46, 37, and 51 shooting and he's, uh, as you mentioned before, he's a guy who's their plus athlete on the team.
0: He's a good player. I mean, I liked him watching, uh, watching La Lou play last year and getting looks at Jeremy Fierce. Uh, you couldn't help but notice Starling as well. He's a really good player. Um, certainly not any kind of point guard. And, and he's actually the only guy in their starting lineup, believe it or not, who has a negative assist to turnover ratio. Everybody else is positive. He's got five assists and 10 turnovers in the first six games. But uh, decent ball handler for Wayne, in my observation. And, uh, you know, does everything well. Good shooter, good athlete, can do some things off the dribble. And he's the one guy who can kind of change the dynamic. Because other than him, Notre Dame is, I'll just say it, it's a lot of white guys pulling up from three. That's what it is. And he is different than that. He gives them that. You know, it's kind of like, oh, like Wisconsin many years where they they might have. Okay, this is the year we've got Alando Tucker, and he's different than everybody else on that (laughs) floor. You know, it's kind of not that Starling is the player Alando Tucker was, but you get the drift. He changes the dynamic for them a little bit um, from from what it typically is and what it is on the rest of the playing group, at least for this team.
1: Uh, next would be Dane Goodwin. He's uh a, for fifth year seniors, he's the third or fourth, uh, for fifth year seniors. And I guess this goes to Jay Wright, right? Staying, saying, uh, get old and stay old. Uh, yeah. So it, he's Br- a-
0: Bray gets credited with it too. And, and it is amazing that that, there is no more Mike Bray team than this with four fifth-year seniors <laughs> in the starting lineup.
1: And he's averaging 14.3 points a game on 49, 48, and 100 shooting. 6'6", uh, and a four-man, but you know, doesn't quite play like you probably expect your traditional fours to play.
0: He would, I mean, calling him a stretch four is a stretch of the meaning of that term because <laughs> he isn't really any kind of four. He's a guard. I mean, I, it is amazing how fast time flies. I have vivid memories of seeing Dane Goodwin playing in EYBL. So AAU basketball with his teammates, foster lawyer and Thomas Kethier. And it's shocking to me that not only is a senior, but he's a fifth year senior. (laughs) I mean, just time flies. Um, But he's become, I give him credit. I was not, particularly impressed with him at that time um wasn't very athletic he was reported to be a very good shooter but um when i saw him play and i saw him play frequently that spring i just never saw him really dialed in i mean lawyer was the best shooter on that team there's no two ways about it goodwin was okay but he didn't he had been billed as um, as a big, big, big time shooter, and uh, he'd been compared to, and I'm, God, it's killing me, kid from Sandusky, out of Ohio, who played at Duke, and and had a had a year or two with the Pistons. I'm drawing a blank, but anyway, he had been he'd been compared to guys like that, and he just never seemed to be quite that level of player to me when I saw him. But when you look at how he's progressed. Over the years at Notre Dame, it's every year has been a little better than the year before, and that's holding true so far this year as well. He's having his best season. I mean, that three-point shooting number is no joke. You know, he's near 50%. So the problem he presents is not only is he a stretch four, he's really a guard that your four-man is going to have to cover. So for Michigan State in this game, I don't know. Do they have Joey Hauser chasing him around for 40 minutes? maybe. Or do you, you know, if you had your full complement of players, you might be tempted in this game to maybe go small, right? Yeah. If you had Jade Nakeds, if you had Malik Hall, but they don't. So, are they, you know, it'll, it'll create some interesting matchups for sure. Because Goodwin, I don't even want to call him a stretch four. He's a fourth guard that they're starting.
1: Yeah, well, you wonder too, and certainly after watching the last game, if you see a lot more Jason White and c six six can maybe match up in size and.
0: Well, I think it, it definitely. Pre- yeah, I think it definitely presents an opportunity for a guy like that, maybe even Trey Holloman, um, to play a little bit more than you might expect. But then the the dilemma becomes: does it mean you're you're just going with Joey at the five because you got to have Joey on the floor? Yeah. Right. So, does that mean you are going with a small, true small ball lineup, or or not? Um, you know, uh, Pierre Brooks obviously would be another option to to play the four in that kind sure. of in that kind of lineup. But it, it still means you're going with one of Holloman, or you know, the, the, those guys would have to play then. So we'll we'll see. But it creates some dilemmas.
1: And the last starter, another fifth year senior, Nate Lashuski. He's a 6'10", 230 pounder. He's been also improving every year and he's averaging 18.2 points a game on 56, 46, and 87 shooting. And he shoots a lot of threes, almost averages four a game.
0: Yeah. A dangerous player. He's the one guy that can rebound on this team. Um, a true stretch five. I mean, that's the thing. You see when you when you see these numbers, the two guys that are really struggling are the two guys you would expect to be your big time shooters, your your two pure guards you know if those guys get on track look out because this kid for a five man I mean that's a weapon so regardless of how Michigan State is playing it whether it's Madi, you know if Kohler and Cooper get minutes if Joey's playing some small ball five whoever it is has got to be conscious of Lazuski on the line on the arc because he is dangerous takes four attempts per game He's hitting almost two of them. Uh, that's a guy you got to be conscious of. And yet he could also go inside and play, you know, he's big enough and savvy enough in the post that, and that's, that's the dilemma that it creates is if you are going small, then the, Notre Dame may have a mismatch with him down on the block. You know, whereas if you've got body in there, for example, you're probably better equipped to handle him out there, but what does that do elsewhere? It's a, it's a, it's a chess match. I mean, there's definitely some elements to this matchup that uh, the coaching staff is really going to have to think through in terms of what's the best approach strategically for them to take. You know, right. of course, Notre Dame's got to deal with Michigan State at the other end too, and that's where they tend to have problems.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, finally, the reserves. And guess what? There's only one that you need to bother remembering. And so this will make the scouting report real easy for you when you're watching the game. The reserve is Ven Allen Lubin. He's a 6'8, 230 pound freshman, averaging 7.2 points a game on 67, 14, 100 shooting, and is second on the team with five rebounds a game.
0: Yeah. So he's done some good things, obviously. He's only he's playing a little under 20 minutes a game. So that's a good rebounding number um, for that kind of role. Uh, not shooting the three very well. I think he's averaged about one attempt per game. So it's not that he won't pull it. He just hasn't hit him yet. So you would think that might be the one guy you might be able to relax against a little bit. Um, Notre Dame can use him in a too big lineup. So if they feel like they've got a problem with Michigan state size, he's an option and certainly one they will go to if they feel like they got to get a little bigger. So it's, it's not like they're Penn state, for example, and they just don't really have a choice. They've got to go ultra small. They, they really aren't in that position. Um, they have an option. Uh, but of course, playing him, you don't have quite that same level of threat from deep that their starting lineup presents you with where all five guys you've really got to be conscious of.
1: All right. So the five keys to the game, number one, the obvious one, the one that should have been uh, number one against Portland is guarding the arc. They haven't shot great, but it's obviously their their way of winning uh, offensively.
0: Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, This is not Alabama. Notre Dame does not get crazy with three attempts. They're, I, I want to say they're maybe about 33, 35% of their attempts from three. So they're not crazy with it. It's The, the danger is that They have the potential in any individual game to just really, really hurt you in terms of their efficiency from there. Because they've got you know, they got three guys who are having great years shooting the ball already, and two other guys who aren't, but historically have proven to be very good shooters. So that's a lot to deal with. And I think if you're Michigan State, if I if I were Michigan State, the way I would view it is. I'll take my chances on Notre Dame inside the arc. I will hope that my interior defense, uh, my ability to stop limit penetration, all those things is going to be good enough. And that the one way Notre Dame can hang in there or beat me is if they're hurting me a lot from three. So I'm going to try to take that away from them. Right. I was, uh, you know, I was disappointed in both of the wins in Portland by first, the first halves in terms of how Michigan state played on the perimeter. Like they let both of those teams really get going. And then those games turned because they got into it and they started actually getting into people. They started guarding people, locating and closing on shooters and only two in both games, get lax late (laughs) and and allow those teams to shoot themselves back into the games but for the most part the second halves in both those games were really good this is one where i'd like to see michigan state up in it from the tip
1: uh second key to the game as you have mentioned a couple times here the athleticism can michigan state take use that to their advantage with only one player sort of the starling being a plus athlete
0: yeah i mean i look at this it's it's not like you know, Michigan State is not rolling out Jason Richardson. I mean, you <laughs> know, or, or Shannon Brown. The one guy they've got who can get into that conversation probably isn't gonna play. You know, right. Jaden Akins. But Michigan State is still a much more athletic team than Notre Dame is. And so when I look at, at a guy like Tyson Walker, for example, I don't think Notre Dame is should be able to handle him. You know, I think Tyson should be able to get to spots on the floor. He wants to get to. And so then it's a matter of hitting those shots. AJ Hogarth. I don't think Notre Dame has a really good chance of stopping him. I think the only thing that would stop AJ is AJ. You know, (laughs) I mean, really, I think he's, I just, I don't think there's, there's a good matchup there, you know? So I, I think in that way, Michigan state has some advantages that they need to exploit and, and Notre Dame suffers in my mind, defensively, most of all from their lack of athletes. They just, they just don't have guys and it's compounded. You know, it's one thing, you know, Pierre Brooks, for example, is not a great athlete, but he's in a system and a culture and a program in Michigan state that is going to demand that he get better. And the way you can get better is you think the game better. And there's lots of examples over time at Michigan State of guys who have done that. Notre Dame doesn't demand that. So, consequently, those guys kind of are what they are. And they don't, I'm just talking this year, I mean, historically, since Mike Bray's been there, they don't tend, in my observation, to play better than their athleticism says they should be.
1: Right. Yeah. And next key to the game is turnovers. So Notre Dame, as we mentioned, is a very low turnover team, and Michigan State is for Michigan State team under Tom Izzo, unbelievably good when it comes to turnover percentage. They're, tw- they're number seventy-five in Ken Palm in turnover percentage, which is—I uh, mean, I think they've they haven't been only under out of the one hundreds only one time, right?
0: If they okay, so Ken Palm started in two thousand two, so we got whatever that is twenty-one years now of data, I think. Um, mm-hmm. If it held at this level. This would be the second best turnover season in MSU history in the Ken Palm era. The only season that would beat it was the 2015 season where they went to the final four. They finished at number 71 Uh, in the 2005 final four season. I think they finished 84th. Those are the only two years they've been inside the top 100 and often they're outside the top 200. Oh, yeah, often. for sure. Yeah. So, this is now you could look at it and say, on the one hand, there are reasons why you should expect a better performance. One, this is a team that has a lot of confidence in their guards and a lot of experience with their guards in some ways, um, at least with the starting, the two starters. Um, and then the other thing is, as we've talked about, the fact that MSU maybe has a little tighter rotation than we're used to seeing, maybe playing into it as well. But, you know, that one, the experience in Portland maybe cuts against that because they had lineups out there that in no way, shape, or form were ever anticipated they would play this year. Carson Cooper played a little bit of four in Portland. Jason White has got heavy minutes in that Portland game, right? Um, you know, Trey Holloman was playing maybe a little bit more than you thought he would. Uh, that's not to be expected, and so I don't know whether it's as simple as that, but I do think those things are contributing factors. Bottom line is Michigan State's valuing the ball very well. I think it matters here for a couple of reasons. One, Notre Dame is the furthest thing from a ball hawking defense. They are not likely to force turnovers. So if you're making mistakes, they're going to largely be self-inflicted. And that's something you need to see Michigan State avoid, obviously. But the other thing is, because of the fact that Notre Dame really doesn't try to offensive rebound, and because of the fact that they are a very good defensive rebounding team, I don't know that I expect that there's going to be a likely a big gap on the offensive boards. There could be, but that would be Michigan State really doing a great job against a team that generally controls its defensive glass pretty well. Um, if that holds true, then you don't want there to be a big gap in the turnover category because you probably aren't going to be able to make it up easily on the boards.
1: Right. Well, number four is get old, stay old. And, uh, and I've mentioned already, Notre Dame has four of their five starters, are fifth-year seniors. They've got one freshman. Uh, the counter to that is Michigan State's got a lot of upperclassmen too playing. They you, do with Hogard, Walker, Hauser, and even Whitens. You could say, right?
0: Yeah, oh yeah, a lot of experience, just not at the Big Ten level, but sure, Division One experience, tons of it. I mean, the kid started like I don't know, forty-five games in his career at Western. So yeah, um, you'd feel even better if you had Malik Call, who's oh, yeah. another senior. But even so, you know, Michigan State is a team that has a good amount of experience, but this is one of those games where they're trumped pretty easily by the opponent. Um, And that can have implications. I mean, the, the one thing you would expect is that Notre Dame is not going to do a lot of dumb things to beat themselves. That's generally what you expect from an experienced team is they're going to play poised basketball They're going to make you actually go out there and beat them, at least on the offensive end. They're not going to make a lot of dumb mistakes. I think defensively they just don't show a lot, Um, but we'll see. I mean, this is kind of the Mike Bray platonic ideal of what a program, what his program, (laughs) what he wanted to be at least this year. I, you know, next year, it's not going to be the same deal by any means, but for this year, you could, you really can't do much better than four guys in their fifth year of college basketball. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And so we'll see if that has any, any impact on the outcome. If we walk away from it saying, boy, that's a team that just kind of savvy their way to a win, you know?
1: Well, the fifth key to the game is, I you know, a bit surprising to me here, late game situations, Asia yeah. say has really struggled, obviously, to close out games, even with fairly sizable leads. And so, you know, can they get a lead, and if can they hold it and not make it? So it's going to come down to the last possession or two possessions. Yeah. And you know, I guess, I guess that's the question.
0: We got yeah. We got to talk about it at this point because it you know, and Izzo took a, took the blame on himself, uh, put the blame on himself rather. He took the blame uh, for what was happening in Portland. But uh, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't personally, I can't let it go there. You know, you've got veterans, and most of all, you know, people want to blame Hauser, okay. But yesterday's game at least against Portland, Joey was done no favors at all by AJ Hogarth. I at least two of his three turnovers I felt were largely, if not entirely, the fault of aj hogart and so that that goes beyond um the uh the turnovers that aj definitively committed himself that can't happen and it's not solely an aj hogart issue but i think it's a lot an aj hogart issue you know um And so I I don't know what you do at this point. You know, we talked about it at length yesterday, right? Um, I don't know what you do to get through to him. Ideally, you would use playing time to get through to him. And I think that will be easier once Jaden Akins is back. But, you know, he's not right now. So you kind of have to let A.J. play through it. But there's just no excuse. Michigan State is a team that actually – should be extremely well positioned to handle late game situations where they've got a lead. You've got guards that are experienced that are proven good ball handlers. Right. Um, And you have a team that's pretty good from the line. You know, there's, there's not a lot of guys that you, you want to be running away from the ball in a late game situation. You feel reasonably confident about all of them. And I, I don't know what else to say, you know, other than they have to get it cleaned up. And hopefully we're not going to see this become a regular thing because then it, it starts maybe to get in your head. You know, I think that they probably felt very good about themselves coming out of that Kentucky game in terms of how they handled pressure situations there. Right. That was great. But since then, all three of the wins have included collapses, you know, and, and worse yet collapses against teams that are not built to pressure. So when they're coughing the ball up against Villanova and Oregon and Portland, those are teams that don't press with any regularity. So it's not like, Oh, well, you know, you're facing a team that's really good at ball hawking at forcing you into bad spots. No, they're just, applying garden variety late game desperation stuff and you're not handling it so they've got to get better and i I, let's hope for all of our our heart rates that we don't run into another one of those again this time but but i know this at least for a while any michigan state fan when they're up 10 with a minute and a half to play not feeling comfortable could you blame them
1: That was me last game, and, and uh, my wife's like, "Oh, this game's over." I said, "Well, it should be, but I've you know the last two games have it shows that it's not." But yeah, I agree, it should be over. And then you know, Mission State melts down, and but not all the way, but almost completely melted down and lost the game. And you're right, yeah.
0: Every single one of these games has been a one possession game, and if I remember correctly, did Oregon have a did Oregon have a chance? They did. They must have. They must have had the last possession, right?
1: Well, they got. Yeah, they got it down to one, and then maybe two, and then Sissoko hit a couple of free throws. I mean, they, they, they got. They never had a chance points. to take the lead. They never had a chance. It was a uh, yeah, seventy-four, seventy-one. 74 seventy-four seventy? I think so. Actually, 74-71. No, it was a four-point. Yeah, three, it was a three.
0: Uh, three-point, three-point game. Uh, but uh, what I was going to say is that all three of those games, the opponent had a chance at the end. Yeah to tie or win it. Yeah. You know, and so statistics would tell you you're playing with fire, you know, probably. Oh, sure. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One time it's going to catch you. Yeah.
0: And, and and you just, you can't have that. And we, and we know from experience from years and year decades of watching big 10 basketball, a lot of big 10 games are going to be played in a very tight window. So, you don't want this to start creeping into a team psyche. You know, these are, these are kids still, you know, even Joey Hauser is still a kid, relatively speaking. Um, you don't want this to go on and linger and, and become a consistent issue that they are thinking about, that they're asked about, et cetera. So high time to start handling these scenarios in a better fashion. Let's hope it's not even tested, in this one, that Michigan State wins with ease.
1: Well, we'll hope for that, and uh, we'll see everybody after the game, uh, probably get the episode out, I guess it'll be early Thursday morning after the Notre Dame matchup, which is a late game. Is either 9.15 or 9.30, it probably depends on timing of the previous game. Yeah, we seem uh, to be
0: really having a lot of good luck with uh fortune of drawing humane tip times. <laughs> <laughs> I say very facetiously.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say for me looking at the schedule going forward, at least at home games, which is the one I'm most concerned about, they're mostly 7 PM starts. And so the nine or one, nine o'clock ones are killers getting home. You know, I got get home from uh, East Lansing. So I'm happy if it's gotta be, if it's gotta be a nine o'clock game, I'm glad it's on the road. And so I don't have to, <laughs> where to try and get there and back home. Uh, so we'll see everybody then again, make sure if you want to support the show, you go to the final force the com slash support. You can, support the show, either monthly contributor or one time gift for you, PayPal or Venmo. You can also um, go to Patreon with the monthly supporters. We have the um, Cleaves level where you can get a, um, a t-shirt after they come out, which should be very soon. You can also become a supporter in the magic Johnson level and get some advertising the show. If you're interested in reaching thousands of Spartan fans, you can certainly contact me at Eric at And then you can, um, we can talk about ways to sponsor the show also, finally, with the Big Ten pre- prediction show or contest, you have to predict the Big Ten teams one through 14 When at the end of the season. Uh, you can send that in to me at erica at It's still timed for entry until the Big Ten, first Big Ten game, which is against probably Northwestern, I think, Saturday but or Sunday, but maybe there's a Saturday game. I'm not sure. So it'll either be the third or the fourth of December is the last day to get those picks in. Uh, so until next time, the Final Four is on the schedule. Go green.